0: Help us to understand Your call upon our lives and to help us persevere in faith and for some to be drawn to that faith in a saving way is our prayer. We ask, Lord, that You will be magnified here in the sermon that we have sung to one another to this place already. We thank You for this reminder of Your sovereignty, of Your authority in this world, and of Your trustworthiness. And I pray that as we labor In the scriptures today that we will learn and grow and be deepened in the faith. I pray that your name would be magnified in the way that your people attend the word. Which we acknowledge is our life. We need it. We ask you by your spirit to teach it to us. To allow it to be understood and to affect us deeply. And we pray for those again who do not know Christ. And ask that their eyes might be opened to the saving power that is ours in Him. He took the wrath that was reserved for us. Now we who have trusted in that mercy know grace. We thank you for this reminder. We're thankful for the exhortation that we have been able to share with one another in song. And now... As we look to this time of exhortation in the word, again we ask that you would aid us here for the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As born again disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that we are saved by faith in Christ's death and in his resurrection. And we know that as God's people, we live by faith. We are called to live in steadfast, dependent trust in the Lord. We know then that the maturity of our relationship with God hinges on the vibrancy of our faith in Him. But then there's the great irony. We naturally shrink from virtually every faith-building experience. Faith in God is strengthened in the dark. We know this. Faith in God is nurtured by trials. It's nurtured by money problems. It's nurtured by relational conflict. It is nurtured, faith in God, by disappointment and tragedy, by disease and by death. Yet we spend our days hoping such things never happen to us and fretting that our faith may not be strong enough to handle those that do happen. If you're tracking with me to this point, I have two ideas I want to share here at the outset. Don't spend time fretting over the weakness of your faith. Do you do that? I do at times. Would my faith stand under that pressure? Will my faith stand under this trial? Don't spend your time worrying about whether your faith is strong. Focus your attention on the trustworthiness of God. Focus on the trustworthiness of God. Secondly, don't live in fear of the next trial that may befall you Ground your faith in the sovereign purposes of God. Know that whatever comes to pass is by His design and know that well. So don't focus on the weakness of your faith but focus on the trustworthiness of God and don't worry about the trials that will come to build your faith but rather put in deep roots into the purposes of a sovereign God in his providence. Now these two lessons are vital. They're lessons that flow from the book of Habakkuk as we come to the end of this series, as three chapters of this book of Habakkuk in the Minor Prophets. We see Habakkuk's journey of faith, and this is one. these are ideas that we learn from that journey. We draw this book to a close then today, coming to the third chapter. But remembering this first chapter... The book starts out with Habakkuk saying, I'm distressed. The godless are prospering in Judah. How can this be? It was a godless culture that was now prevailing, and the prophet wonders why God fails to judge the wicked. God, how can you stand back and watch this and do nothing? Well, God answers. What does he say? I will judge it. I will come in discipline against my people. Wait for it. It's coming. But when he reveals how this will be the case, Habakkuk is even more confused, more traumatized. The Chaldeans, the Babylonian army, these ruthless, wicked, godless people coming to discipline God's people? That makes even less sense. Chapter 1 in verse 13 he put it this way how can you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man that is more righteous than he how can you bring the Chaldean army against your people and discipline them in that way this makes no sense he's confused his faith proves to be a project in the midst of these circumstances and this revelation but we noticed in chapter 2, verse 1, there's a, a movement here in his faith. In chapter 2, and verse 1, he says, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower. I look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer then concerning my complaint. He stands in patient waiting upon the Lord. That doesn't mean he's doing nothing but it does mean that he is in dependent trust upon what the Lord will do in the midst of these confusing circumstances. What will God say to him? Well, the Lord answers. You see there in chapter 2 and verse 2. The Lord answers Habakkuk. Habakkuk has come from complaining to waiting in steadfast trust upon the Lord, and the Lord now begins to reveal to him his purposes. And the center of the book, the most significant statement perhaps in chapter 2 and verse 4, but the righteous shall live by faith. Here in this context, that seems to mean by steadfast trust in the Lord. The righteous will live by steadfast trust in the Lord. God always does what is right. He is not always easy to understand. And so I put my trust and my confidence in in who he is, and God, giving the prophet further understanding, reveals to him, I will send the Chaldeans, they will discipline my people, it will be very ugly, but my hand of judgment will fall severely upon the Chaldeans after that. And so in chapter 2 we find verse 6 and following five woes, five stanzas of destruction that will come down upon the godless Babylonian army. And so we find in chapter 2 and verse 20 the prophet again waiting. As he says there at the end, let all the earth keep silent before him. God is sovereign. We've been singing of it here this morning. He is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. He will have his way and in the end it will be a way of goodness. But it is filled with blood and pain and judgment. And So he says, let all the earth be still, be silent before him, trusting and waiting on his purposes. Much has happened already in Habakkuk's heart as he's revealing it here over whatever period of time it took as he is uh, uh, seeking these answers from God and receiving this revelation. But we come now to chapter 3. And I, I, I want us again to just not look at this academically but try to get into the skin of Habakkuk, to try to be in his sandals waiting for this army to come. I mean, this is bad news. This is really, really bad news. He is waiting for the invasion of the Babylonian army. It's going to appear on the horizon... And that army is going to descend upon Jerusalem, descend upon Judah, and destroy it. This ruthless, selfish, wicked army will come to do nothing but consume. That's what he's waiting for. That's what he knows will come by the promise of God. And chapter 3 is his final response. In Psalm, Habakkuk celebrates the splendor and the power of God's saving acts through the ages. And again here, he teaches us how to prepare for the devastation that may come. How to prepare for judgment. How to prepare for trial. He celebrates. He focuses not upon the weakness of his faith, but upon the power of God to save The psalm, the prayer, indeed, begins in chapter 3 and verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigeonath. We don't know what that word means. It's a musical notation of some sort, and it gave some instruction. To them we find the word in the Psalter. Notice chapter 3 and verse 19 at the very end. You see that this whole psalm is given to the choir master with stringed instruments. So we have this musical note at verse 1, and it is given to the, um, it's used for liturgy, for the singing of God's people. This is an ancient text of what they would sing to the Lord. And in uh, verses 3 and 9 and 13, you also see in the column there, perhaps, and maybe italicized as it is in, in my copy of Scripture, here is Selah. Sila Again, we don't know what that means either, but again it is a musical term, again found often in the Psalter. So this is, a, this is to be sung. This is a song, a poem, indeed a prayer to God. You can pray and sing to God. We've done that here this morning. We, we ended with it, didn't we? Sovereign Lord. We're, we're addressing the Lord. We're singing a prayer together. And that's what he desires Israel to do together as God's people, to sing this prayer and passing it on this way to the liturgy of the chosen people. It is passed on to us. And we can sing this song. We can know these truths and rejoice in them together today. And so as we look at this poetry, let me just say a couple of things about it first. And that is, it is um, uh, both in form and content. Hebrew scholars see it as one of the most majestic and poetically robust passages in the Bible. This is not easy text. Israel sang it and thus in singing this difficult text they learned the truths of God. They didn't read it the first time and say, I got all that. They sang it over and over again and slowly the doctrine of truth permeated their souls. There's no other way to read this. It's 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 in a literary sense, it's beautiful. It is structured in a way that shows tremendous uh, skill and creativity and yet it's deep and profound in its theological content pointing to the saving purposes of God so as Habakkuk faces severe worries he grounds his faith in the larger picture of God's sovereign judgments in salvation history a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet here it is verse 2 oh lord I have heard the report of you And your work, O Lord, do I fear, I reverence. I know what you've done. I've heard what you've done. Which way is Habakkuk looking? His focus is turned to the works of God in the past. Based on God's character as revealed in those historical acts of sovereign intervention, Habakkuk prays. Verse 2 in the middle of the verse, In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. He's saying, I've heard of the wonders of your acts. Do it again. Come again. Revive your acts to save your people, I pray. In the midst of the outworking of your sovereign saving purposes, continue to to, uh, intervene. Continue to reveal your glory and save your people. The end of verse 2, he says this, this simple phrase, in wrath remember mercy. Or we could add to it perhaps he's saying but as you do as your wrath comes upon your people remember mercy when we stand back and take in the big picture of redemptive history we recognize that God's people are in what we might call a friendly fire situation all the time God's judgment does continue to fall on the nations of the earth that rebel against him but in every one of those nations are some of God's people and so they're always in a friendly fire situation, as we see in perhaps, we could just say, for instance, Syria today. There are Syrian believers who are in situations where they have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to go, and they're just waiting for someone to knock at their door and say, deny Christ, die, leave, or pay us a lot of money. And then if you pay us a lot of money, we'll be back. That's their deal. It's a friendly fire situation. The judgment of God falls. The trials of the nations come and the raging against Christ as Lord and Savior is expressed as people misuse people. But in the midst of it are God's people. And so Habakkuk says, in your wrath, remember mercy. Be merciful to those who suffer. And so we should pray as a church for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering through the world as God's judgment falls on people. And say, well, what judgment is there of God in these things? It's their own sin that brings its own judgment many times. In wrath, remember mercy. Remembering the past, he says in verse 3, I think here speaking of the exodus, God came from Temen, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague, followed at His heels. Teman and Paran are in the region of Mount Sinai, where God descended in an intimidating display of power on the mountain, to give His law to Israel. And here speaking of the flashing brightness that veiled His power. May be a reference there to Mount Sinai. It would be fitting also to, as a reference to the glory cloud that led Israel out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. I don't know that it's necessary for us to be specific to find the specific reference in each of these cases. But certainly the pestilence and the plague may refer back to Egypt. Uh, perhaps if we depending on how we take these locations it could refer to the conquest of the nations in the promised land as well but we see here the light of god the splendor of god the power of god and the judgment of god in these past events in verse 5 god stalks through the earth like a giant displaying his glory in verse 6 he stops he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Figuratively, this God stalks through the nations. He stops. And He sizes up the earth. And He grabs a hold of the mountains which cannot be moved, and He shakes them. In fact, he comes down with a hammer or with a fist, as it were, and smashes them to dust. No nation, no matter how proud or powerful, can do anything but cower fearfully in his presence. The nations of the earth can knock down a man made wall, but they cannot attack a mountain. They can't destroy it with their spears. God can, and He does. I saw verse 7, he says, the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains, that's reference to tents I think as well. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. This reference to tents and curtains probably referring to the nomadic peoples who are fleeing from the glory cloud that is leading Israel out of Egypt and fleeing from Israel as they are coming in mass to the promised land. Trembling before the awesome God of Israel. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Poetically marking the arrival of God's advance, Habakkuk now is addressing God directly. God splits the Red Sea. It's as if His horses churned up the sea and dried it up for Israel to walk through. And God stopped the flow of the Jordan River to allow the Israelites to come into the land. With each assault on these waters, God brings His people to the promised land. The waters are the boundaries of the people, especially in ancient days. God dries up the boundaries. He brings his people from Egypt into the promised land and seats them there by his sovereign purpose. This weak, enslaved, small nation conquers. Again, figuratively, the horses of God's chariot churning up and drying up the waters. Verse 9 you strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. A picture. Is God as a warrior pulling his bow from its sheath or its cover and readying this bow to attack his enemies? Calling for many arrows is a, a confusing phrase, but. Uh, you might see a marginal note there, not sure how to translate the Hebrew. But the idea, of course, is of a warrior preparing. And, he, and it says then, after the Selah, which might indicate a place of some sort of transition or stoppage, he says, you split the earth with rivers. That seems to connect to verse 10 and following. The mountains saw you in ride. the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it, lifted high, it, it was lifted on high. Lifted its hands on high. The waters lifting their hands on high. What is this? Could be a reference to the Red Sea, but probably it seems like he may be going back in time to the judgment of God in the universal flood. You split the earth with rivers. That is, the floodwaters receding from that judgment into great rivers. And the mountains writhing and raging. Perhaps especially the lifting of the hands of the water on high, that is the rising of the waters of the judgment of God, whether literally to the great flood in Genesis or figuratively to God's work in liberating Israel, we're not sure. It would be nice to talk to the author and perhaps someday we'll be able to do that. But a lot of discussion goes into this, and by the way, I'm giving you my conclusions, I am... Sparing you the four-hour lecture of giving all of the views of each verse and what uh, those views are, I think there's we, we can get fairly close. There's some things that are difficult. It's it, it, we have to continue to meditate. Verse eleven: The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, could very possibly. Uh, be a reference to Joshua and the defeat of the Amorites as the sun stood still on that day. But ultimately it wasn't the arrows of Israel, it was God's arrows, the flashing and the glittering of His spear that defeated the enemies of God. Nature itself, in the reference to the sun and the moon, is subject to God's purposes. We don't think of this beyond the academic very often. We know that God is the maker of the sky and the sea. But how often do we think of Him reigning literally over them? Controlling them, directing them for His own purposes. Verse 12, you march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. Again, probably indicating the pursuit of the Israelites To the promised land and defeating nations before them and then entering that land. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people. I could serve as a banner over the judgment of God. His purposes in that judgment to save his people was the purpose. He has a people. He has a chosen people and for them he labors in salvation always. So you went out for the salvation of your people is his purpose. One author says the illimitable resources of omnipotence are forever arrayed on the side of God's own people. Now remember, Habakkuk's saying, really? I'm not seeing this. God's ways are always right. They're not always easy to understand. But always we can know that nature itself let alone the nations of this world in their raging against Christ that all of it is serving the salvation of God's people in the end. This is the sovereign Lord. This is how He works. This is the one who is trustworthy. He possesses all power and He uses all that is necessary to save His people. The rising and the fall of nations is intended by God for the rescue and for the security of Of his people ultimately though they stand in a place of friendly fire the second phrase there the next phrase there in verse 13 for the salvation of your anointed as well and here we could talk about differing views for a long time I am persuaded at this point that the anointed one is a reference back to the prophet Isaiah who refers to the anointed one being King Cyrus of Persia. To draw from that earlier prophet would have drawn immediately, and in fact he's dealing with many of the same ideas, it would have been understood by many who read this, the anointed one being referenced in the book of Isaiah. Cyrus by name long before his birth. Now obviously the reference points to the greater anointed one ultimately of whom, Israel, uh, of, of whom Isaiah rather spoke. That is our Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately the anointed one. The one who would rescue his people not only from Babylonian captivity but from sin. The next phrase of verse 13, "...you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from the thigh to the neck." Again, a debated phrase, but probably a reference to God's devastating judgment on a king's household or dynasty. The house as a picture of that dynasty. God's hand came down and crushed this dynasty. Whether Egypt or Syria or prophetically of Babylon... God continues to move through the nations and bring about His purposes. No one can withstand Him. Isn't that the point here? No nation can stand against God. They all rage against Him, but not one of them can stand up against His purposes and His power. See this, know this, says Habakkuk. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors that is god uses the power of violent nations against themselves they self-destruct as if their arrows turn in mid-air and come back and strike their own soldiers is this not what history shows us the most powerful and ruthless of nations always overstep they overreach And eventually they bring about their own destruction in one way or another. This is the case under God's providence. Verse 14, the second part, "...who came like a whirlwind to scatter me." These are the raging nations coming against God's people, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Or perhaps it's coming against God Himself, as if no one's going to notice they come to destroy nations." But God brings it about that they pierce themselves with their own arrows. In verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. If this is a reference, which it seems to be, to the splitting of the sea, you see how Pharaoh's army brought about its own destruction. By coming at the people of God who are now pinned against the Red Sea, they're dead. They have no hope. They have no army. The sea is at their back. But in coming against and raging against God's people, the Babylon or the uh, Egyptian army, rather, actually comes up to the place of their own destruction. Entering into the parted waters of the Red Sea, this, the army is destroyed. And so the poetic picture here, verse 15, "You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. You drowned. Pharaoh's army, who attacked your people. This is his poem. This is his song for the people of God. Remember, it's written as Habakkuk faces a devastating future. God has promised him that the violent, ruthless, destructive Chaldean army will soon descend upon Judah and that army will decimate the nation. That will happen. You notice Habakkuk's response is not, I'm going to run to Egypt. I mean, I'm no dummy. I see what's coming. I'm going to find security there. Wouldn't that make sense on some level? He also does not respond in despair. This is horrible. We're going to lose our nation. We're going to lose everything that we know. And and he doesn't curl up in a ball and wait. He doesn't ignore the future. But rather, what does he do? I would also add, He doesn't stand around and say, I wonder if my faith will be strong enough to handle this. What he does is he rehearses the power, the might, the sovereign grace of God toward his people. That's what he rehearses. He prepares for the pending ordeal by rehearsing the everlasting trustworthiness and the all powerful, history altering reign of the King of Kings. It's how he thinks, it's what he knows. It's the depth of the theology that he understands about God and salvation history. It's in that that he roots himself. Not an exit plan, not despair, not inward wondering if he can handle this with his great faith. He rests in what God has done and who God is. Habakkuk thoroughly grasps this point. His circumstances have not changed, but this vision of God alters his entire perspective. And so at verses 16 and following, we have Habakkuk's response to God's trustworthiness. Habakkuk's response to God's trustworthiness. The poem has brought out who God is, and now here is Habakkuk's response. First of all, he fears God, verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Or, said another way, he's sane. How else would you look at this revelation and respond if you really sensed it and got it? He fears. He's quaking, shaking with fear as he thinks of the advancing Chaldean army. But Habakkuk trembles at the revelation of God's majesty and power to save as well. Habakkuk fully grasps what the author of Hebrews articulated. He gets this. What did the author of Hebrews, how did he put it? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For our God is a consuming fire. Habakkuk sees that and gets that and he trembles in fear. Amazingly, this intense fear eventually served to calm Habakkuk's soul. First, there's no other way to see this, but the power of God is, is, is frightening. But notice where he moves very quickly, the end of verse 16, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will wait for the day of trouble for the judgment of God to fall upon the people who invade us. There is some ugly business between now and then. One day, as God has promised, His judgment will fall upon this godless Chaldean army that is out to do nothing but hurt people for its own selfish purposes. That day will come. And I trust in that. You fill in the nation Fill in the leader. Fill in the genocide taking place at this moment in earth's history or that will take place in the future. Fill in whatever blank you wish. God will bring justice. There's just a lot of ugly life to live between now and then, but we put our trust in what God will do. He will bring about ultimately what is right. We trust that. We know this. And so, His fear turns to waiting. I will quietly wait, again, not to do nothing, but to steadfastly trust in the Lord of heaven and earth to fulfill His perfect plan in exactly the right time. Habakkuk is applying, in some sense, chapter 2 and verse 4, the just do not live by petrified fear. They don't live by fear of the coming disaster that will eventually befall the nations. The just reverently trust God to work all things together for good. Such trust is their way of life. It's how they live. Habakkuk will patiently then wait for the day of trouble to come upon the Chaldean army after they invade the promised land and rain down terror on Judah and take the nations captive to Babylon. Why? Because God is God. Because God is trustworthy. Because he can put his hope and his trust in the Lord to do what is right. And he rehearses this in his mind. And so Habakkuk responds with fear of God. He responds waiting upon the Lord. And then thirdly, he responds by steadfastly trusting in God. And here the whole book comes to its glorious conclusion. Notice this steadfast trust as he says, verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. You see, verse 17. If these things happen, should these things happen, or these things will happen. This is what God has promised is going to happen to Judah. Israel's fig trees and olive orchards, their vineyards and the grain fields, their flocks and herds producing milk and meat and wool for clothing, all of it would be ripped from their hands. The grocery stores would be leveled. The clothing stores would be leveled. All of those things in which we find joy in such an agrarian culture, our sustenance, it's going to all be gone. That's what he's facing. Habakkuk is not looking at the loss of his job. He's not facing being cut from the team. He's not facing divorce or the death of a family member. He's not declaring bankruptcy. He's not facing the challenge of just being told that he has a terminal illness take all of those disappointments and those matters of loss and the difficulty of all of it and pile it together and times it by a hundred. That's what he's facing. He is facing the death of his whole culture. The whole world that he knows, everything that he has ever grown up to know and trust in and depend upon, it is going to be cleared off the table. Gone. And he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Which says to us if you have God, you have everything. Now, he does supply, he must protect, he must sustain our life, but that is in part what Habakkuk is saying. I have God, I have all. I have all. See, what we're witnessing here, this is, this is stunning. So God take everything off the table, sweep us clean, so that we have no way to sustain our own life and we're taken captive and our whole culture, our whole nation completely disappears. I can trust in God. I can rejoice in my relationship with Him. What we're witnessing here is not Habakkuk's great faith in God. What we are witnessing here is Habakkuk's faith in a great God. There's a huge difference. It's not the strength of Habakkuk's faith that matters. It's the trustworthiness of God that matters. What he's been rehearsing here in chapter 3 is not, now here's where I trusted God for the first time. Here's my heritage and my upbringing. Here's how I have demonstrated the power of my faith that will sustain whatever is brought against me. That's not what he's rehearsing. He's rehearsing the steadfast power. And trustworthiness of God, and this poetic rehearsal of God's splendor and sovereign power to save is preserved for us, that we might ground our faith in God's self-revelation. You know, there are, for all of us Habakkuk 3:17 experiences somewhere in our future, a day when the only thing we can rejoice in is God. I think the best way to prepare for that day is to find hope in God's sovereign saving power displayed through the ages, to become familiar with that story, to be able to rehearse it, to know who God is, and to review in our mind over and over again, building our faith in the trustworthiness of the Lord. Focused in this way, the questioning, the fretting, and the anxiety that Habakkuk started with ends on a note of triumphant faith. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Nimble, sure-footed, powerful, quick, abounding in energy, the deer treads Israel's hills in joyful sport. And thus is the effect of the Lord's faithfulness on Habakkuk's soul. Come what may. Whatever providence designs, I will rejoice in the Lord. And this joy will make me nimble and sure footed and abounding in energy as I serve Him. Choir master. Put it to stringed instruments and let God's people sing. This book provides us with a glorious faith-building vision of God. The God who rules from heaven's throne. Do you know it? He rules from heaven's throne with absolute authority, with all powerful purpose, working all things according to the counsel of His will. He is sovereign over evil, He is absolutely trustworthy, and we sing together as a church to remind ourselves of these truths that our world does not want us to ever think about. This book reveals that the, re- the remedy of our weak faith is to concentrate focus on the trustworthiness of God We must rehearse the truth that He is all-powerful, that He is all-knowing, that He is all-wise and is tenaciously loyal to His people. He's confusing, and so we don't always see this. He does things in ways we don't understand, and so it doesn't always look like this. But this is the reality. We can trust God in the dark no matter how dark and foreboding the unknown path ahead, when we learn who He has revealed Himself to be. So a Habakkuk 3.17 moment will visit us somewhere, if merely in death. I think we can conclude our hope in God on that day will rise no higher than our vision of God today. Our hope in God in the moment of trial will rise no higher than our vision of God right now. Keep growing. Keep deepening. Keep knowing the sovereign purposes of a God who works all things according to the purpose of His will. You'll need it. If in no other time you'll need it in death, but you'll need it. And of course the trial will deepen you. The trial will deepen that faith. But with every trial comes a deepening of faith that prepares us for that day when we have nothing to depend on but the Lord and will say in our soul, in this moment, I am nimble and sure-footed and filled with joy in God alone. Habakkuk encourages us away from the imbalance of the doomsday prophet on the one hand, and the prosperity gospel on the other hand. The doomsday prophet, the fearful obsession with the pending destruction, as real as that may be, and. On one level, I'd rather deal with the doomsday prophet because at least they understand what's coming. The doomsday prophet on the one side is fearful obsession. The prosperity gospel on the other is a mindless and dangerous ignoring of God's pending judgment on the nations. We don't want to think about that. We're busy getting things from God. Don't trouble us with talk of judgment. Now, some of those... Uh, speakers do talk about the judgment of God, but it's always against the people who don't pull the right levers. Never against them. There's no friendly fire talk coming with them. It's do the right things, pull the right levers, and God will pour down riches upon you. You'll win the lottery. We see here such a mature focus in contrast to these immature responses Habakkuk has his feet firmly planted on the ground of reality. God has judged the nations through the ages. He will judge the nations through the ages because he's a just God. He has to, and he will. But yet there's a theology rooted in the optimism and the hope of God's promises and historical conquests. The right focus here that Habakkuk demonstrates is to see the genuine evil of a disordered world that rages against the reign of Christ and to know this isn't going to end well for them. And it's not going to always go well for God's people in the midst of these people who are judged. And yet, to balance it with a vibrant optimism that knows that God will have the last word and He will rescue His people. If you're on His side... If you're His child, you have to rejoice because of the goodness that He's earned for us and given to us by His grace. So I'm reminded of the angel who announces in Revelation 11 and verse 15, this is where we're headed. This is the optimism for us. The kingdoms of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Grasping such a reality puts everything else into perspective. Such global, eternal optimism, though, I I would fail you to not mention this eternal optimism is not possible for you if you remain in your sin. If you remain in your sin, there is a day coming when the patience of God will run out And the only thing that a just God can possibly do is to bring judgment against you as one who has broken his law over and over again. As we all have. This is God. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It doesn't matter how you choose to paint him. This is the God of the universal flood who judged the earth because of its wickedness. Saving just a few people. We've perhaps recounted that here in this poem this is the god of the egyptian deliverance who brought the egyptian army to the edge of the sea the night before having killed the firstborn and drowns that army in the sea this is a god who brought israel into the promised land to judge the corrupt canaanites He gave them 400 years But in the end, he came down with severe judgment and crushed the mountains of Canaan, so to speak. This is who God is, but now on a personal level, putting yourself before this God, his judgment will fall on sinners. The good news is that God's just judgment against individual sinners was paid by Jesus Christ. It was suffered by Christ. We sang this morning, that He suffered the wrath reserved for me. The wrath that I deserve, the judgment of God that I deserve for my sin, fell on the head of Christ. He bore the weight of that punishment. And in the garden, Christ faced an an invasion by the powers of darkness that made Habakkuk's concern look small by comparison. Jesus faced that trial that you might receive forgiveness. He took that judgment. In fact, he bore as no one ever has before the friendly fire of God as no one ever could. And He paid the cost. So that repenting of our sin and putting our full trust in what Jesus did to pay that penalty, to pay that price, we can be delivered from his judgment and we can be His subjects. So that He, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, labors for our salvation. He has and He will for His people. When a sinner truly experiences that level of forgiveness, that release from guilt, that payment of judgment by Christ, all other trials fall into perspective and we sing of the trust. Worthiness of the Lord. Come, whatever may, He is trustworthy. Know it, Christian. Know it. Embrace it. Put down deep roots today that we would prepare our soul for what comes in the future. And Lord, we ask of you your help, your mercies. We don't know entirely how even to apply what we have seen here. We've made an attempt. I trust that our faith has been deepened and our perspective set. But we don't know what's out there in the future for us. Unlike Habakkuk, we haven't received a direct message from you about the future of America or the future of our homes. But I thank you that come what may, you are trustworthy. May we help each other as a congregation receive that truth and remember that truth. And when we get disheartened by the small trials that we face in this world, may we remind one another graciously and in an edifying way of who you are. That you are utterly, absolutely trustworthy. That you always do what is right that you always labor to save your people, that you are always working all things according to the counsel of your will. May we be reminded because the world we see does not help us. May we encourage each other with this truth. And Lord, if there would be anyone who is right now destined, headed toward judgment before your throne and has not been covered by the blood of Christ, has not taken on the robe of righteousness that he gives as a gift to those who trust, I pray that you'd open their eyes, you'd bring them off the path of destruction and put them on the path of trust that they might say with joy that makes them bound with energy and hope within that you, Lord, are my King and my Savior. Bring that joy and song to us as a church, to those who do not now yet know you as Savior, and may we sing forever and ever of the glories of our Lord and King. And in this time, come what may, may we remain faithful, not because our faith is so strong, but because you are absolutely trustworthy. This we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.